This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me. Help. Help. Good morning. Good morning. Coach Hogg here in Coach Hogg's locker room here in the Piney Woods of North Central Florida in God's country. And uh, we are getting ready to produce a show here. I'm, I'm looking for myself on the screen so I can see the handsome man I am. Or used to be. Let's be honest about it. Maybe never was. But uh, we want to thank Melton Law Studio. We're in. Uh, Melton Law has 50 years of experience. And they won't back down. They're the only official law firm partner at the University of Florida. And, of course, thank uh, CPSS.net for uh, protecting us 24-7. Three, uh, 65. Let me see if I can get myself going here. Um and, uh, and and and, and uh, welcome you to the Ward Scott Files. So anyway, you know, always come in on a Monday with the Coach Hogg locker room, and uh, it's it's pretty interesting um, that the Gator seems to have been pleasing to the uh, fans this weekend after kind of a drought of of confidence. Uh, let's put it the way it really is. Um, they sort of have a accepted this once again, wait until the next year deal. And and um, it looks as if um, maybe next year can come a little bit early. Um, it's winning and winning pretty convincingly here against the South Carolina team, which ever since Steve Spurrier left is never going to have those days of glory again, in my humble opinion, and I'm never wrong. And nevertheless, the team looked like it was sort of functioning as a team. That things had begun to gel, the culture, the quote unquote mysterious term culture was beginning to set in. And as that set in, everything would become uh, hunky dory again in Gator country. And indeed, you know, they have to watch out for Vanderbilt. Oh, Vanderbilt has been tricky as can be. Good morning, Don Printer Bailey. Um, it's been tricky, you know, Vanderbilt snow can be unusually good for unusually def- reasons that no one understands, but they beat Kentucky and look like a real football team. Uh, they are the only Ivy League school, in spite of what the University of Florida claims to be. Uh, they're the only Ivy League school in the SEC. And so consequently, they'll have good players, but they won't have as many because they just don't have the things it takes nowadays to get the players. They get their players through academic qualifications, honest to God, academic qualifications, not these ones you hear touted as student hyphen athlete. And I think, by the way, with the name, image and likeness and the transfer portal, people have pretty much uh, written that off. Now what we have is a form of pro football at the college level. And we're going to get into some of the finances of that in a moment. And you'll, if you haven't paid any attention to these sort of things, your mind will maybe kind of jarred a little bit when you realize the money that's involved in this game. Now, the game, if, you, if you're the type of man who likes to fall on the ground all the time and bash other men and wrestle and sling each other down, and, and you know, then you love the game. There's no game like it uh, where you just get to just beat the tar out of each other and then pile on top of each other and get away with it and just fight. Basically, it's just one long fight, and fans love it. It's a fight at every position when it's done well, and some of the pro games, which we'll talk about in a moment this weekend, exemplify that. Just real slugfest right down to the end with some amazing acrobatic skills displayed by these athletes who are honest honest to God, um, really dedicated now to the sport because there's so much data research and money that's in it. Uh, you've really got guys who are training year-round now. This was ballet dancers would. 
Some of the wideouts um, are just doing acrobatic. In fact, many of them will do backflips after they score a touchdown. So it's really something to behold. Um, the the um, game is, of course, uh, always seems to be playing catch-up at the college level. And I kind of want to go into that a little bit now uh, because I want to uh, draw your attention to really how successful as I picked him out early on as I thought the most dynamic coach in the SEC right now, Brian Kelly. Um, Brian Kelly is a pretty unusual fellow. Uh, just a few things here on he has a, uh, a, a lifetime record of 113 victories to 40 losses. Um, he is uh, the FSU, the LSU program um, makes about six and a half million a year after it pays everything, salaries and everything else. And he has, let me just see what he has here. He has, I think, a 10-year, $95 million contract. And um, these LSU people uh, really started the kind of facilities race that I'm going to get into a moment that the University of Florida had to get into. Or they'd snooze or they lose. And, of course, they went out to compete with, with um, none other than Alabama, and I think surpassed them. They certainly have surpassed them in terms of the record because for once in a long time, Alabama is not in the SEC playoff game. It's going to be LSU and Georgia. Now, Georgia is no surprise. Uh, Kirby Smart has a 76 victory, 15 uh, uh, loss record. Uh, so that means he's lost 20% of his games, um, if I figured it right. Uh, and the record for Brian Kelly is not shabby. He's lost about 35% of his games, but he's been to different colleges. His career is much longer than Kirby Smart's, as you can see. Almost uh, um, not quite as twice as many games played, really, than, than probably almost twice as many games coached as, as Smart. So uh, the facilities at um, LSU – Really, just the locker room alone was $28 million, and we reported on that a couple of years ago, how it was as plush as anything you'll see in any five-star hotel. And that became uh, something attractive to Brian Kelly because Brian Kelly thought, okay, it's worth my time coming down here, as he calls it, coming down here from Notre Dame in the north to LSU in the south since it looks as if um, you have made a commitment to helping me have the kinds of facilities I need to recruit the top guys, and then I'll coach them up and we'll be competitive. And that has certainly turned out to be the situation. So you've got now two established winning coaches that, uh, that a Billy Napier has to, has to compete with. And, they, and don't count Lane Kiffin out of it. Lane Kiffin is a tremendous coach. Uh, they have done marvels with the facilities at Ole Miss compared to the last time I was there, and they've closed it in, et cetera. Uh, so that's another competitive coach and is going to always be a threat. Um, yes, Ray, gone are the days when players came from the state they played for. Uh, pretty much, pretty much gone. Occasionally, you know, of course, we have a quarterback here who came from not only the state, but also the city. And the national news makes much of that. Uh, the fact that Richardson is an Eastside High School graduate. And that's pretty rare for, as a, one of our listeners here points out, not only for a player to have come from the state almost automatically, although it wasn't always the case. Larry Smith came from Tampa. But Steve Spurrier came from Tennessee, uh, whereas George Grandy came from Jacksonville. Uh, so there were a lot of guys, primarily a lot of them here, as did most of the, uh, the students come also. And the emphasis was on uh, giving a college education opportunity to Florida's high school graduates. That's not the emphasis now. The emphasis on competing with the Harvards and that sort of thing. So we've got a situation where uh, you better have a lot of money. Now, Florida, 
And this is all private money. Uh, and it's not difficult to raise $85 million in cash when you consider the state of Florida and all the wealthy people there are in the state of Florida, particularly Texas, for example, and even Louisiana, who uh, just an individual guy can easily stroke a check for $5 million and never miss it. Uh, it means nothing to him. Um, so there's a lot of those type of wham. So Florida spent $85 million on its facility, which all the way back to McElwain said that they just had to have if they were going to ever have a program worth a good coach coming to. Now, let's just review an article that Matt Baker put in the Tampa uh, Times in back in August. And he covered this $85 million football complex, which is all paid for with private money, the Heavener Football Training Center. Now, they have a barber shop in here. Uh, they have all the amenities. It's basically um, a, a self-contained city untoward uh, the athletes. Uh, one of the things, for example, it's 140,000 square feet, and um, uh, they have an indoor practice facility. They have connected to the weight room. They can get a smoothie on the way from the, uh, the, the weight room to the locker room. Um, they can go into the plunge pool. Um, the coaches and the analysts uh, bullpen flow into the me team meeting room, which flows into position meeting rooms. And now if you're a, a head coach, you've got to bring a staff of about 100 with you. And these are all subdivided into analysts and data this and data that and nutritionists and that and your own barbers and everything else. So it's a whole production in order to attract and keep the best in order to make the most fan uh, approval in order to make the most money and particularly to attract the TV money and the best time to be seen on TV. So one of the things that Matt Baker reports is that before this practice facility was built, it would have taken the Gators 18 minutes to walk from the stadium to the practice field and another 18 minutes coming back. Now, um, that is, what, 36 minutes? And those 36 minutes, uh, the thinking is, can be better spent uh, in the film room or anything that's in that unit, self-contained unit that is directly uh, supportive of winning. Uh, that 18-minute walk one way and 18-minute walk back is not is wasted time. And the, the data sophistication that we now have with all measurement devices allows these coaches to fine-tune the best and highest use of those minutes, perhaps some extra film study uh, or looking at a blown coverage. They can cram that into those 36 minutes. So the technology has increased the efficiency, supposedly, of the coaching uh, player relationship. And you've got to have it or you're not going to recruit successfully. And if you do recruit, they can always leave. They can simply go into the transfer portal. Uh, the Gator Room features massive screens. Uh, you can see uh, all the plays there to go over again. Um, this is probably impossible to overstate the importance of having uh, something like this along with a lobby showcase. It helps that the Florida football team has three national championship trophies. Um, it helps that it has a couple of guys here, well, three with the Heisman trophies. Um, the, the chairs material in these rooms is made out of material that looks like alligator skin. There's a virtual reality room. Um, a nice pool that makes it look like it's a resort. So uh, to be sure now, the coaches bring with them an army of uh, coaches. Uh, they learned this from Saban, and they copy, by, the, by and large, Alabama's organizational chart. Um, they have million-dollar assistants now, and they have a state-of-the-art building now to analyze nutritionists, recruiting directors, uh, all this business. So it is really time to put up or shut up. You've got to start winning because Brian Kelly's not going anywhere, you would think, for 10 years. Uh, Saban, he's not going anywhere. He may have a little bump in the road this year, but that's because 
there's a little bit more parity now that we have the transfer portal. Because once upon a time, you could recruit a very good player whom you knew wouldn't play, but you had him on your team, you knew he wouldn't come back and beat you. We used to talk about that all the time in the coaches' meetings. Uh, we would go out and take a guy we pretty sure wasn't going to play, but he was so darn good if somebody else had him, he'd come back and beat us. So we'd take him saying, you're going to have a competitive opportunity here, knowing all along that he wasn't going to beat out of Steve Spurrier or something like that. Nowadays, a Harmon Wages or a Kay Stevenson would simply go to another school and they'd play there and they'd start and we'd see how they do. Uh, each of them, in a sense, had a better career than Spurrier did in the pros. Uh, not as Spurrier punted for 10 years behind Brody and sometimes got in and then was mauled down at the Buccaneers first year. And so uh, banged up really badly. And then, of course, uh, uh, you, you know, the, the, uh, the uh, Harmon had five really stellar years at, at, at uh, Atlanta, holds records there still. And Kay Stevens had a long career with the Buffalo Bills. So it's all about facilities. But I want to top this part of this conversation off. Michigan, the University of Michigan, has a 100% privately funded $168 million facility. So it ain't over, I guess. That's the way it is working, is it not, in the college student athlete, if you believe that, why the emphasis obviously is on athlete. Uh, if they get an education as a student along the way, there are tutorial labs over there up the yin-yang. I had friends who would moonlight in uh, by tutoring at the University of Florida, the players. Um, but the main thing was, of course, to be performing on the field. So um, that's where we are in the college world. The, the doggone pro world is so exciting right now with really games that are coming down to the, to the wire. The Buffalo game with the Bills and the Vikings was an excellent example of that. Just fantastic play, acrobatic catches, daring calls, uh, extremely uh, well-conditioned, fast uh, players. Uh, it's really something to behold. In the parity, it appears to be anyway in the league. Um, and, of course, for money, they are expanding into Europe, playing games in Germany and Britain. And, uh, you know, God forbid there will be an NFL in the, in the European world and they'll be Americanized. This can never be uh, Americanized. If you bring American football uh, to uh, Europe, they'll see that uh, uh, what um, – Collisions there are. There are collisions in rugby, but they're nothing like the collisions. When you put one of those helmets on, that thing becomes a battering ram. It's become so problematic to cause injury that, of course, helmet to helmet gets you disqualified right away, gets you, if you were a recipient of it, whether you can still walk or wobble, you'll be called into concussion protocol. There's more and more emphasis on being cautious about a concussion protocol to make sure that uh, uh, these people are safe as they can be uh, if it's possible. So uh, that's Coach Hogg's locker room. We do have uh, some other things that are going on in athletics, of course. Um, you know, I, I remain perplexed, and I'll say it publicly, uh, over the fact that um, our volleyball team, and we have a great volleyball coach, allows four or five of her players to take a knee during the anthem. Um, I asked about how this was being done because I didn't go to the game yesterday with the basketball uh, team. I really like the basketball coach. Uh, they stay in the locker room until after the anthem. I suppose uh, that is pretty shrewd of the coach uh, because the coach, if you take a, a, a college player uh, out to the to, for on the floor, uh, during the anthem, and that college player takes the knee, uh, you've got some people who are not coming back to that game. Uh, that's I'm serious. They're not coming back to watch that game, uh, particularly when you consider a Brittany Griner now in a Soviet work camp, as we're told, uh, and cannot be freed. Uh, uh, she was one of the biggest critics of, of, of the United States, and you see where she is now. You would think, you would think, but 
not necessarily so, I guess, that these coaches would take this opportunity to, it's all part of team unity. Look, your team exists within a country. The country should be a team. The community should be a team. You know, we all should be pulling together. Of course, we're not. But one of the examples of where you should least show it as a, as a teaching lesson would be with, of course, uh, the, the, the very teams that you coach. And I, I think that you could turn that into a positive rather than a negative. So people repeatedly tell me that uh, Mary Wise is um, not doing something that would hold their attention to volleyball. And that is uh, allowing players to take the knee. I, I haven't been there. I went one time, uh, but that wasn't the reason I haven't been back. Uh, but other people have contacted me and have said, well, this is really um, not the message we want to send. Particularly when you've got private citizens in the state who are contributing, you know, 85 million private money to create a program. Uh, you're going to go out and display uh, something antithetical to that. That doesn't really uh, hold a lot of, uh, makes a lot of sense. The worst case example I can think of this was Mullen, who walked in the Black Lives Matter, and we know what that's turned out to be, that movement, uh, parade in Gainesville with his team. I knew at the time that was the wrong thing to do. You don't do that. You know, there's a reason why the officers don't mix with the enlisted men in a service. That's just the way it is. There's a reason why, as a professor, you don't fraternize with your students. I mean, that's just the way it is. It's, it, it's all about chain of command and ability to command and, and um, respect and all that, all that sort of thing enters into it. So when you go down into the street and participate in, I doubt Mullen gave a damn about the cause. He might even privately been a bit against it, but he buckles and you see what happened to the team unity. It went off in every private direction. It went off into poor behavior on the field. Uh, undisciplined uh, players was the kind of rep that Mullen left here with, a guy who couldn't discipline his players. Napier evidently understands this well because he chunked a guy off the team who did a little fracas at the end with a Georgia player, and that was the end of him. You know, I like that. I mean, that is the way it ought to be. And uh, um, so that has built, I think, I don't know if we can measure it, but I think it's been one of the things that has built team unity that you see now. They know who the boss is down there. They know the chain of command. You would think, based upon their behavior right now on the field, they'll get a chance to prove this a couple of more times with Vanderbilt and then, of course, the pesky interstate rival FSU. So it can turn out to be a season. They're now bowl eligible. That's a big one in terms of money. So if they were to win out, I think they'd be seven and four. And the couple of games that they lost, uh, one of them, they were very early on being a team. I'm pretty sure if they came back and played Kentucky, they'd beat them. Uh, not LSU, although they were competitive there. Um, probably not Tennessee. Um, so there's a couple there that they could get back and maybe win and put in a win column if they were to play them now at this end of the season rather than early in the season. But they've certainly got the facilities. They certainly don't have any excuses in terms of uh, a, a booster commitment to the program. So We'll see how that works. I wish, though, and maybe this comes, maybe this comes from the athletic director. Um, maybe the athletic director Strickland needs to step in and talk to these coaches, particularly Wise, uh, Mary Wise. What, what an uh, ironic name, in, uh, given the situation and subject we're talking about here. What an ironic name, um, you know. And say, hey, listen, you know, we've got people trying to buy into this program. We've got people. You know, now we're not South Carolina, by the way, where the uh, practically entire team is minority. The coach is minority. All this that might be different. I haven't watched them at the uh, uh, the anthem, uh, but you know that they've got their established brand. Okay. Anyway, still, I think you should lead rather than follow. And on this instance, they probably should pay attention to 
the dismayed fans who have stopped going to the events. Locally here, to switch gears here, uh, I want to talk about people ask me, can the single member districts thing be undone? Yes, here's the way it would work. And Mary Helen Wheeler has already blabbed about this the night of the election. Now, she's not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but she's learned how to speak the party dogma. And she, in that case, she's a loyal party participant. Uh, she will take her marching orders from the Democrat Party bosses, trust me. And so when you heard her say what I'm about to say she said, you will know that this reflects kind of a party attitude and perhaps a party strategy. Uh, she was asked, I, I am told that there's a newspaper report that uh, uh, quoted her on this. I was told that on the night of the election when single member districts won, she said, oh, it won't matter in uh, two years. We'll simply put it back on the ballot. I don't think the people knew what they were voting for. Now, that's been passed along to me by a reliable source. I asked for the link. I think the link is probably out there. I'll try to find it if I don't get it from my source. But it makes perfect sense to me that she would say something like that. And it makes perfect sense to me that that would be the backup plan by the Democrat Party. And let me tell you how it would work. And let me tell you what's so wicked about it. By Mary Ellen Wheeler saying that, and let's assume when she says it, she speaks for the party, which I'm sure she does. Um, we will simply put this back on the ballot in two years. They could have put single member districts on the ballot anytime, anytime, any election cycle. Why did they not do it? They didn't want to take the chance. It would pass. And so now that it has passed, they're going to threaten to put it on the ballot, which they can do as a commission in two years. They could put single member districts right back on the ballot and have the people vote on it again. And then you would see a real war. And I don't know how that's going to work out. But yes, can the commission do that? Yes. Now, one wrinkle to this is that two years from now, two of those commissioners will be voted in or out by a single member district. So we don't know how that would work out. But it doesn't take a super majority. It just takes a majority. I think I'm pretty sure I'm right on that. I don't believe it takes a super majority. That's four out of five. Uh, uh, it, you know, it doesn't take unanimous five out of five. I think three, just as three can fire a manager or a, a, an attorney, uh, a, a city attorney or I mean, a county attorney or a county manager lives at the pleasure of the majority of the commissioners, which in the case of the county is three out of five, can vote together and fire that manager or attorney. Now, I'm pretty sure the same, uh, but each municipal government is a little different. I was on the Charter Review Committee of the city of Alachua, and uh, there is, you know, that Charter Review Committee could only make recommendations to the commission which would then act on the recommendations of the Charter Review Committee. And you were appointed for, I was appointed to it for five years at staggering terms, the Charter Review Committee. Now, the uh, County Review Committee meets every 10 years, and those people are appointed by uh, commissioners. Each commissioner gets to put, uh, I think it's two on, uh, and as, as I have to remember, but that's the way it's, they put on, they put on by the commissioners. And usually those people are not put on by the commissioners unless it's understood they're going to do the commissioner's bidding. So you get the penny wheats and the Joe Littles and the mouthpieces that you've been puking over all your life here in the community. The same old squeaky wheels, nothing changes. Uh, you have to realize that 20% uh, uh, of the people, the same people show up for government. 80% don't. 20% of the people give them money. 20% of the people put up the uh, candidates. 80% of the people just sit around and, um, you know, behave superficially and complain if things don't go their way. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's <laughs> that's the way. So, yes, uh, before we take our bottom of the hour break, I will say that, yes, 
single member districts can appear again. It can be put on by the very commissioners you want out of there. Uh, obviously, the people want to change. However, if you look at the votes, I think it's about 2,000 votes separating the two. It's indicative of what's going on in the nation. And I'm going to get into that when we get back from our bottom of the hour break. So let's take a break of fall the weather. And we'll be right back on the Ward Scott Files. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, RR Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Wardscott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All these poop. A warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Now for the weather brought to you by Lewis Oil. All right, welcome back to Ward Scott Files. Uh, a little joke going on behind the scenes with production. I got it. You know, I got to check on them. They got. Oh, boy. I'm going to get into that in a minute with the whole uh, national report on the election. But, uh, hey, this is the weather. And I wanted to give a follow-up. Thanks to Lewis Oil for supporting us. Hey, listen, this is a nightmare scenario we've got over there by Wilbur-by-the-Sea. And it's made, of course, national news. Everybody out there looking at those homes uh, slide into the water. And uh, we've got a coverage on it now. Uh, some of them are in precarious situations if they haven't already fallen off into the sea. Um, some of them narrowly escaped. Some of the roads washed out. Uh, four dozen coastal buildings from homes to hotels have been declared. I'm reading this off AccuWeather. Unsafe by county and municipal building inspectors, inspectors in Volusia County. Um, I don't know why they're ever built, allowed to build there. I'm a Bible guy. Don't build your house on sand. Isn't that in, isn't that somewhere early on? Don't you don't you don't you hear that? I mean, did you are, art thou a heathen? You don't don't thou know those your, your scriptures? Um, so here we got all these houses built on sand instead of rock. Um, and you know they think it'll never happen. And yet you got all this talk about climate change, <clears throat> seas are rising. Really? Duh. Duh, you don't need climate change for the seas to rise. Of course, the climate change people have blamed this whole thing on, once again, the internal combustion engine 
Boy, I'll tell you what, that thing is a cause of all the evils in the world, is it not? The internal combustion engine, which they build a, a road for it to travel down right there on sand next to the ocean. Well, let me see how much money we got here. Five, between $5 billion and $7 billion in damage. Um, really, in a way, more catastrophic damage, although different, if you think about it, on that end. Uh, that, of course, storm caused a lot of serious damage. But here we've got a topography change. And I will bet you that they'll go right back and cajole their way into building the same place again. Um, there you are. It's, it's, um, it's, um, it is um, pretty interesting. I've heard so much discussion about why they're allowed to build there in the first place. You can ride around this town and see the same thing going on in the great shining city on the hill that was populated by the UFO arrival in 1947 when it dumped out genetic material by the Lake of the Stupids for the current commissioners of the city of Gainesville and the previous ones. Um, hey, this isn't a war of the worlds. Don't think it actually happened, but it probably did in some way. But go around and look at some of the places uh, we're building now. Uh, years ago, there was a situation called Blues Creek where it was built on marsh and they went after the builder and this and that. Um, you know, it's going on. It's, it's, listen, Florida is the most attractive state. And we're going to get into that in a moment. In the union right now, the most attractive state in the union. So let's plunge into that story, okay? Let's take a look at what has made it so. There's enough election analysis fallout now that we can begin to uh, make sense of what has happened. And it's safe to say, of course, we all know that the red tsunami uh, never happened. I um, never thought it would. In fact, I thought it was a trick. I mean, I hate to think this way. You know, I hope I'm not becoming, you know, kind of off the charts on this, but I remember what Norman Mailer, the great writer, said about paranoia. He says, I'm living in an age when to be paranoid is approaching having common sense. So I'm going to offer my suspicions about the failure, the eventual failure of uh, the, the, the so-called red tsunami. I'm going to chalk it up to common sense, which approaches being paranoid. I always thought that by the media so willingly and eagerly and enthusiastically printing headlines that buckle up, get ready, there's a red tsunami coming, it was a manipulative trick by the Obama narrative writers. You see, if you say you're going to win easily, then you don't watch that game. You turn a channel and watch one on another channel that is a little more suspenseful. So you don't go vote, if you follow my analogy here. You don't pay attention. You just take it for granted. You believe those headlines. Why would you believe those headlines when they've never been believable about anything they've written up till then? So all of a sudden, hook, line, and sinker, you swallow this gobbledygook of a red tsunami. Well, where did that come from? You know, you had a man who sat in a basement, never came out, couldn't attract a crowd of more than a couple hundred, who found his way into the Oval Office. And you've had a steady attack on the man he booted out of the office, and every form there is to attack the man in consistently until he becomes a political liability and everybody knows it but him. It is, it is, it is really kind of amazing. Everybody knows that the Democrats worked like feverishly night and day, 365, to turn Trump into a liability. Everybody got it but Trump. 
He still doesn't get it. Really? It's over for Trump. He helped do it to himself. If he had not attacked DeSantis, he may have still been on life support. He may still have survived intensive care. But then he turns around and bites the hand of the doctor who's saving him. What? You cannot be serious. And that's what he's done. So looking here. I titled today's show, The Importance of Prepositions. You know, when I was a little kid, I think you probably have a sip of coffee. When I was a little kid, we had to memorize the Gettysburg Address. And we had to get up there and say it in front of the class. And, you know, and we had to analyze it and talk about it and, you know, break it down and why it was so successful and why people forevermore have to stand up in front of class and say it. Um, you know, it has to do with this brevity. It has to do with this uh, way in which it says things four score and seven years ago. Uh, you know, that that's memorable. That's poetic. People say four score. Then you have to go look at how much is a score, you know? Oh, 20. So that's 87. Four score. Why need to say 87? He understood before there was such a thing as branding that to say things differently so that they did, as Eric Hoffer says, stick in your imagination like fish hooks. That's the whole secret to language. Is say that which everybody else says in a way that's slightly different from the way everybody else says it, uh, and it'll stick in your head. In the great short story by Flannery O'Connor called A Good Man's Hard to Find, uh, there is a line that I can't ever forget. It says, Hiram, try that there car and see will it run. Hiram, Try that there car and see, will it run? Now, if you wanted to capsulate language that would produce in your imagination an illiterate man who, in this case, is an escaped convict who has just killed the family, occupied and owned that car in order to get it to continue his Illusion, uh, 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 elusiveness from the law, and his sidekick is named Hiram. You know, Hiram is a name. Didn't call him Bill. Didn't call him Joe. I mean, the author, Flannery O'Connor, realized that Hiram, hey, that's a little different. How many people do you know named Hiram? Hiram, try that there car and see will it run. Man, 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 Lincoln knew this. He knew this. And more importantly, one of the most powerful devices, and it's all through the Declaration, is parallel grammatical structure. The repetition of similar grammatical patterns, that becomes a drumbeat in the narrative. And Lincoln knew, and he boiled it down to prepositions, just prepositions. Now, a lot of people don't know what in the heck a preposition is. You know, it's of, about, in, around, above, below. Prepositions. Magnificent. And they take objects. And they become phrases, prepositional phrases. Lincoln uses them in such a way that we Little kids have to stand up and memorize it and repeat it. Government of the people, by the people, for the people. And the reason I title this is this is what Trump started out representing. The populist movement. 
he carried that battle flag. He took on the deep state and his glorious moments of battle. He took on the climatologists. He took on the entrenched career set in his ways, corrupt politician. He drew crowds so vast and large that motor cars were lined up for 10 years, 10, uh, 10, 10, 10 miles to get into an area where they might catch a glimpse of him. And it demonstrated that the people, the people wanted to be involved in their government. The people Government of the people, by the people, for the people. This is representative of what Alan Guizzo writes. Government of the people consenting to the powers of the government that govern them. This really was the core issue in this last election. We want to get government back in Congress to where it represents us rather than these factions and gangs and committees that they represent. That's what I think changed. And rather than Trump being about the people, he is now about himself. He has done more damage, if you analyze the election results, to the red, to the success, the so-called expected success of the tsunami than the Democrats ever could have done. The Democrats demonized him. That worked. That really worked. He didn't understand that. And I didn't think that he didn't understand it until what? He turned on DeSantis. He turned on DeSantis. And now, if you take a look, and I'm just going to give you some examples of things I've been looking at and reading. I'm testing my own hypothesis here. And like I always do, I'm sharing it with my students and my students can come back and say, well, Ward, you're all wet on this or, you know, this makes sense. Um, or not. This is all up for you to decide and work on. Governor DeSantis. Let's just take a look at some of this thing. This was November the 10th and the opinion page of the Wall Street Journal. No newspaper with significant readership in the state of Florida endorsed DeSantis. Let me just read you some of the headlines that are in this article by Dave Seminaro. The Miami Herald. Governor Ron DeSantis' Florida is a place of meanness. It is a place where dissent is muzzled, where personal rights triumph over the greater good, where winning is more important than unity, especially if that victory moves him closer to a White House run. I have never to this day heard DeSantis say, he was running for the White House. But the press has already started trying 
to tie him to Trump because he's a populist. DeSantis is a populist. And guess what? Trump skewers himself more than the press has ever skewered him by attacking DeSantis. Not once, but twice. The Tampa Bay Times called DeSantis a bully who divides to conquer. The Palm Beach Post wrote that he relies on hubris and manufactured culture war drama to govern. Talking about Disney. I'm sure. Fort Lauderdale's South Florida Sun Sentinel wrote, DeSantis rules Florida with an iron hand. He dictates what teachers teach. He creates barriers to vote, barriers to voting. Uses raw power to punish critics and marginalizes women, blacks, and LGBTQ people. Santis wins in spite of all this. Newsom, Gavin Newsom piles into it, the governor of California, encouraging Floridians to move to California. Exactly the opposite is true. In 2018, DeSantis got 39% of the vote in Miami-Dade, which is 70% Latino. In 2022, he won 51% of the vote. Um, or he won 55% of the vote. In Palm Beach County, he won 51% of the vote this year, compared with 41% in 2018. That's a 10% switch. In Hillsborough County, Tampa, he went from 45% in 2018 to 54% in 2022. That's almost 10-point margin. In Charlotte, Lee, and Collier counties, he won with 70% of the vote. In Osceola County, St. Cloud, Kissimmee, he lost by 14 points in 18. He won. by Oh, that's where Trump lost by 14 points and DeSantis won by seven. Now, you're telling me that Trump called that guy names? And it's threatened to disclose, quote, unquote, oh, boy, if he gets in the race, I know things about him. That ain't going to work, my friend. It's had exactly the opposite effect. Daniel Henninger. Thursday, November 10th. This is the day before. Uh, uh, this article came out just now. So Henninger's already concluded what's going on. The title of his article is, if, is the Trump liability. Now, the reason I call this the prepositions, because DeSantis embodies the prepositions that Lincoln used in the Gettysburg Address of the people, by the people, for the people. He understands the people of Florida. And I would say that the people of Florida are pretty indicative of a large set of people in the country. Henninger comes out and says, if Mr. Trump announces that he's running again, the 2024 presidential election ends that day. It guarantees a wipeout for 
Republicans. I agree. And I love Trump. I called Trump as a victor when he, when he came down the escalator. I, I knew I knew he was going to win that. And I've been I've been a Trump supporter simply because I wanted a populist to go up there and rattle the cages of the deep state. A term I didn't even know then. I wanted to break all that log jam. Somebody who would. But Trump has lost that identity, and now it's all about Trump. And anybody who competes with, you know, this comes, I think this comes from his, I'm going to say what I think it comes from. You know, I've been a coach, I've been around athletics, um, I understand it. All jiving between and among jocks is about putting the other one down. Or about seeing if he's tough enough to take the criticism. Because then you see that makes him tougher. Jocks don't come out and say soft and squishy things. They can't or they don't they feel the manhood threatened. So they all come out hard and mean. And if you can't take it, then they don't want you around them. They expect you to give it back to them. It's all fair. It's the way we communicate. We're not about being nice. Because being nice will make you soft. We're about being mean. If you can take it, you're one of us. Because we got to be, be meaner than those guys. So I think this comes out of Trump's golfing instincts and all that stuff. Remember, he's been around, a, bought a football team. He got, you know, you know, he's all been in all that. But, you know, you got to know which battles to fight, which guys to pick on, which guys not to pick on. Um, I remember, I remember one time, I'm going to tell you a little bit of the story. I remember one of the coaches really, beaten pretty hard on one of our big talented players we had. And the big talented player never could get it. And so the coach beat on the big talented player even more. And so I asked one of the other coaches I was with that day when it was going on, why does the coach keep beating on so-and-so? And my buddy said, well, the coach doesn't get it. There's nothing wrong with this player. He's just dumb. Beating on him ain't going to make him smarter. I've seen a lot of that. I've seen a lot of that. But it's a job thing. You know, beating on you is good for you. Okay. Beating on you is good for you. So already the press is writing that you associate with Trump and you've lost the election in 2024. That's not going to go away because Trump has fed right in on it. Here is Rex Tessero. The Democrats can't count on Trump in 2024. Trump, this writer says, was the secret weapon of the Democrats. They let Republican candidates publicly associated with, publicly associate themselves with Trump. And the Democrats played that up and use it to their advantage. However, DeSantis never once did that. Now he crushed Charlie Crist, and some people think Charlie Crist is crushable because he was simply a weak Democrat. But then the Democrats had nobody else. They had nobody else. They had to roll out Crist. So in doing so, and Trump and DeSantis beating Chris so badly, he carried Hispanic voters, DeSantis, by 13 points, college voters by 27 points. 
The Democrat advantage declined by 18 points among Hispanics, by 17 points among working class voters, and 23 points among non-white working class voters. The Santis heavily carried heavily the Hispanic Miami-Dade County, which has historically always belonged to Democrats. He carried it by 11 points. Osceola County by seven points, a county where Puerto Ricans among, are among the most democratic of Hispanic subgroups. You know, the Democrats are always promising to something to Puerto Rico. DeSantis flying migrants to Martha's Vineyard didn't even disqualify him among Hispanics. In, in fact, they thought that was a good deal because they didn't want their influence as Hispanics watered down by the illegal Hispanics. Well, that's just a little bit of the analysis I've gotten into today and a little research I've done. And I offer it to you as uh, something to think about. That's basically what it is. Have a great day. Warhol Command Center out.